Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. Well, if you've been with us over the past three weeks, uh, we have been having a conversation about generosity. Um, and I just want to say I've been encouraged by this conversation. Um, I, I've had a lot of great kind of pastoral moments. And I think that's, that's the goal. Uh, I, <laughs> earlier in my ministry, uh, when I was young, I... I thought that this was kind of the most important part of the job, what I'm doing right now, and it's, and it's still very important to me. I love it. Um, but I used to kind of do all the stuff I had to do as a pastor, go visit people, be nice to people, so they would let me preach to them. Um, but as I go further in my ministry, I realize that what I really want to do is pastor people. So now I feel like I preach so that I can pastor. And I've been so encouraged by a lot of the, the conversations that I've had with just members in our church that have been impacted by our worship services over the past couple of weeks. And uh, just, I, I think that's, that's, the, that's what I love. That's, what, that's, that's the, wor- the word of the Lord at work uh, in his congregation. Um, I, I've, again, as I mentioned, I think last week, um, you know, I had somebody even come up to me. Uh, it's very rare to have somebody confess that they're greedy. Uh, and someone said, you know, I think I'm a slave to mammon. And, and I want to be a slave to God. Uh, I had another guy, he doesn't go to our church. He, he was just listening to our podcast. He's a friend of mine. And he said, look, you know what? I, I was actually about to buy a car. I didn't really need the car. Um, and uh, I think I just, I really fell under conviction thinking about treasures in heaven. And, uh, you know, so I'm just going to take the money. Our car's fine. I'm going to take the money that I was ready to spend and, and give it to ministries, not our ministry. You know, I said, I said, you know, you can't give it to Christ's covenant now that I've had this conversation with you because I'll never be able to be honest with you again about these things. But anyway, I, uh, but he, he was able to, you know, sacrifice that money. I just thought it was awesome just that the Lord had used uh, his word in that way um, to bless the, his work all over the world. So we've been calling this series Understanding Generosity. And I think what I'm trying to say is, I feel like we're doing that. I think we're kind of understanding what it means to be uh, generous people. This passage that we uh, looked at today, it comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 through 9. And, and if you have your Bibles, I go invite you to turn over there. We'll, we'll look at this passage several times as we, um, as, we, as we walk through this. But this passage has been in, 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 in particularly impactful for me. Um, and there's a lot to it. Uh, there's a lot to this whole kind of section of text. But we're just going to look at two things today, uh, and actually maybe a third later. But for the sermon, we're just going to look at two things, the, the order of generosity, and then secondly, the motivation for generosity. So the order of generosity, just to give you a little context here, the church at Corinth, so First and Second Corinthians, as you may know, they're letters that Paul wrote to a church that he had planted in Corinth. Um, and, and what he's doing in this letter is he's, he's appealing to them, and he's saying, look, he's, he's actually asking for an offering. He's saying, look, there's, a, there's another church that actually needs some support. And I just want to encourage you guys to be, to be generous, to be generous to this other church. As you may know, the church in its early days faced massive persecution. Uh, we, most famously, we know about Roman persecution that the church faced. But in the early days of the church, it actually faced great persecution from Jewish uh, persecutors, from the Jewish world. In fact, Paul, you know about Paul, obviously, but Paul was converted from Saul, but, but Saul was a Jewish persecutor. I mean, he was going around from house to house, terrorizing people, literally putting people to death, pulling them out of their homes, ransacking their places. 
Uh, and so the reason that Paul's conversion was so dramatic, it's dramatic still, but it's so dramatic for the early church, is because this would have been like a member of ISIS being converted and becoming a leader in the church. And, and it, was, it was big. People talked about it. People thought about it. It's, it's kind of like Kanye West now, right? It's, it's somebody that used to, is, I mean, seriously, it, it, not as dramatic. I mean, Paul's conversion would have been much more dramatic than, than Kanye's. But still, you know, this man that used to celebrate things that were not of Christ, now celebrating Christ. And we're kind of, you know, everybody's saying, like, is this real? Is this what's going on with this? And it's the same thing with Paul. Paul was, was such, he was an enemy of Jesus. He was an enemy of the church. He, he hated the things of the Lord. And yet he was radically changed by the power of the gospel, by Jesus himself. And he goes off planting all of these churches. So that's who Paul was. And, and so we're still in this stage of Jewish persecution of the church. Even though Paul was changed, the persecution continued. And particularly that persecution was heavy in Jerusalem. So people in Jerusalem, they were losing their jobs. Uh, people were still being killed for their faith. So families were going without uh, a father to go and make an income. So it was, it was a very hard time for the church in Jerusalem. And what Paul's doing is he's saying, look, send some support to this, to them. And so he writes uh, to the church of Corinth. And he says, hey, I, I want you guys to participate in this offering. But I like how he begins. Look at verse uh, 8 with me. He says, we want you to know, brothers, or rather verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So a little context here. I think I have a, a map up here. Macedonia, there actually, there actually is a country now, or a little region called Macedonia, um, but it used to be a part of Greece. Um, and, and Macedonia, as you see, kind of the the bigger area on the, the big word on the map there included some places that you hear about in scripture like Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. That was all, those were all cities that were in the region of Macedonia. And some of you may remember, maybe you've heard the phrase, the Macedonian call, right? Martin Luther King actually made this famous letter to the Birmingham jail saying, I'm responding to my Macedonian call. Well, Paul had gone to Macedonia. He planted all of those churches, Philippi, the church at Thessalonica, the church at Berea. He planted all of those churches. You can read about that in Acts. And he responded to his Macedonian call. Now he's down here in Corinth. And of course, Paul had previously come to Corinth to plant this church. Now Corinth, uh, it's interesting even studying this passage. Corinth is a city in the, in the Roman world at this time that's a lot like Atlanta. If you were to say, how did Atlanta gain its influence? How did Atlanta gain its wealth? I mean, it's really unlike any other southern city. It's massive. It's global. It's very wealthy. It gained its wealth through transportation. First, it was the trains being a, a train hub. And then, of course, now it's the airport really was the strategic decision that put Atlanta on the map. Well, Corinth, as you see here, it, it actually was a very similar situation. It was located this is called an isthmus, right? So there's a little thin strip of land before this big peninsula. This peninsula is called the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Some of y'all remember in school learning about the Peloponnesian Wars. And the sea around the Peloponnesian Peninsula, uh, like in the Odyssey, was very, very rough. I mean, it, well, that wasn't all myth. I mean, it was, it was a very, very hard and rough sea. And so to avoid that, kind of like an intercoastal waterway today, People would sail up through here. They would literally unload their ships, have their ships carried on a road 
uh, over the land, this little, there's a road there called the Dialcos, and then, of course, put their ships back in here as they went off over to Rome uh, or to wherever else they may have been going. And so this made Corinth incredibly wealthy. In fact, I think I have, you can actually go to Corinth today, go to the next uh, slide. This is, I feel like the picture's not coming through that well, but the road that they actually used to carry the ship on is still there. And then I think I did a little drawing. I didn't draw this, but I found this little drawing. There, yeah, there we go. So um, this, <laughs> what about a knock this out just for you guys? But uh, anyway, <laughs> anyway, so you see here, the, the, the picture here, people would carry the ship on a cart literally over this road, and then they would reload it on the other side. Well, so you can imagine all these merchants were passing through Corinth. They were spending money. All of the people that were on the, the sea, they would get out and they would go spend all their money. And people would put their businesses, just like Atlanta, people would put their businesses in Corinth because all these merchants were passing through all the time. It was a very strategic city. It was a very wealthy city. It wasn't Athens, it wasn't Rome, but it was Corinth. It's just like Atlanta, right? I mean, we're not like New York, we're not maybe LA, but we're a really important city, and that's exactly what Corinth was. And it's interesting how Paul begins the letter here. He says to them, he says to the people in Corinth, I want you to know about the generosity of the people in Macedonia. Look at verse 2. It says, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Again, this is the offering that's going back to the Christians in Jerusalem. So Macedonia would have been like Southern Alabama. Okay, there's some nice towns down there, like Enterprise. You know, Enterprise is a great town. Dothan, great place. Uh, Op, anyone know Op? Wonderful place, right? They got the Rattlesnake Rodeo. Good times, right? Macedonia would have been like that. There's some nice towns. There's some good places. But the wealth in southeast Alabama compared to Atlanta is, they're not really in comparison. You know, the kind of wealth that is in Atlanta compared to those towns, you, you really wouldn't even put in the same kind of chart. And this is what Paul is doing. He's saying, look, let me tell you about what's going on in Dothan. Let me, let me tell you about what's going on in Enterprise. They are, they are, they're under great stress. In fact, if you, if you remember the story from Acts when Paul was planting those churches, this is all like Acts 16, 17. When Paul was planting those churches, he was put in jail in Philippi. That's a very famous story, the earthquake, the Philippian jailer. He uh, was chased out. Uh, the Thessalonican, uh, Thessalonians actually chased him out of town. He had to flee ahead of his party. So they were being persecuted. They, had, they were not a very wealthy people, and yet they were still under this great stress, being incredibly generous, and as Paul says here, even begging us for the opportunity to give. They want to be a part of this offering. They want to be generous. And it's as if Paul's saying to the Corinthians, who had a lot, very wealthy people, what are you doing? What, what are you doing? These other people have been impacted by this gospel so greatly that they're doing everything they can to be generous toward it. What are you doing? And I would ask the same to you. What are you doing? You know, it's easy, especially in a place like Atlanta, 
to get captured by the West. You know, there's so many fun things to do. There's so many great restaurants. There's so many places you could go. There's this, you need to buy this house. You need to do this thing. And you can get gobbled up. The West can grab you. It's very easy to spend all your money on yourself. It's very easy to have no kingdom mindset. So often the church is most effective when it doesn't have that much. So often the church is most effective actually in hardship. Now, I'm not asking for hardship. But what I I desperately don't want is for comfort and ease and success to steal away our kingdom faithfulness. This cannot happen. And that's why this passage, I think, is so helpful in understanding my first point, which is the order of our generosity. And I think you see this in verse five. He said, look, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. They had given themselves to the Lord. Their life was the Lord's. And then as needs arose and as it came to them by the will of God, they had given themselves to us. They had given themselves to this need or to that need, but they trusted the Lord. They were surrendered to the Lord. They trusted God. You know, I was thinking about this week, just about the the idea of trust and trust with wealth. Uh, You know, something I do every month. um, And uh, if you think about this, it sounds crazy, you know, but we all do this. You know, every month I give a significant part of, of my paycheck to a guy that I don't even know who takes that money and invests it in companies that a lot of them I've never even heard of. I have no idea what they do. And yet we all do that for like 30 years and hope that in a shaky economy with businesses that we've never heard of, with a lot of times a guy we've never met, we hope that it's all going to work out for us in the end. We're able to trust that system. Yet how many of us struggle to trust the Lord? to trust the Lord with with anything that is ours? Have we given ourselves to the Lord? And are we useful in his kingdom? Someone asked me this week about Matthew 6. I, I said in Matthew 6, two weeks ago, Jesus says, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And then of course, if you're last week, Barrett said from Acts 4, the closer you are to Jesus, your grip on your possessions will loosen. And they were basically saying like, which one is it? Is it get close to Jesus and loosen your grip on your possession? Or is it give your treasure and then your heart will be close to Jesus? And the answer is it's both, right? I mean, I believe where your heart is, your treasure will be, right? That's what Paul's saying here. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God, they gave themselves to us. But I also believe, of course, what Jesus said in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Here's how the Christian life usually works. And if you've never thought about your Christian life, this is what happened for for pretty much all of us. Something happened in your life, right? You heard a sermon. Maybe something difficult happened. Maybe you read something in the Bible. But something happened. And you decided to trust the Lord with something. You know, some of you, maybe you just decided to trust the Lord by like going to church the next week, right? That was your big like faith step. And then you trusted the Lord 
to go to church the next week. And then all of a sudden you trusted the Lord to meet with a pastor or you trusted the Lord to join a group or maybe you just trust the Lord. Some of you right now, you don't trust God enough to sing in our corporate worship service. You don't sing because you don't trust the Lord. Now that's okay, you're welcome and you can keep coming. But our hope is that you would actually begin to trust the Lord enough to worship him. But that takes some faith, right? If you don't have any faith, then you're not gonna sing. You're, you're just, you're gonna think this is silly. And if you don't have faith, it is silly. So just keep thinking that we're silly. But, but, the, but what we're hoping for is that God would do something to grow your faith. And, and that's the Christian life. There, there, you take a step, you trust the Lord, something happens, you, you realize that God is trustworthy, and you take the next step, and you take the next step, and you take the next step, and you take the next step. And it, and it works this way. The more you trust him, the more you invest, the more you invest, the more you trust him, and so forth and so on. Where your treasure is, your heart will be. Where your heart is, your treasure will be. Now, some of you will say, well, okay, how do I get started with this, especially in generosity? How do I start to be generous? And I would say, look, it's a great time to start to be generous. We're at the end of the year, right? So you can assess, you know, I think something you should do in all areas of your life, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, a wise thing to do at the end of every year is just to say, okay, how was this year spent? How did I spend 2019? And one of the ways that you should assess your life in 2019 is how did I spend my money in 2019? And some of you are going to look at 2019 and say, okay, I didn't save what I wanted to save. I didn't give what I wanted to give. In fact, I basically spent all my money on myself in 2019. Some of you will say, I actually spent more money than I had on myself in 2019. And so this is a great time to change that and to assess that and to get some help for that. And I would just say, as it relates to the area of generosity, look, you know, it, it's just like everything else, right? You, you, you do what you value. You, you do what you make a plan for. You can say, I want to be generous all you want. But if you have no plan of action to actually do that, and of course, typically the Christian plan is to give the first fruits of everything you have to the Lord. And I think that's just a great practice. I, 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 uh, people always ask me, they say, well, you know what, Jason, you know, as if I, you know, as if I'm not like a pastor, right? They'll say, look, the New Testament, we're not under law, right? right? So, you know, we're not, we're not under the law of the tithe anymore. People always say that. And here's what I want to say to that. Look, you're not justified by any law, right? So don't tell me that I'm not justified by this one little law. Like, no, we're under grace, right? You've been disobedient to the whole law, okay? So I can, we can use tithing if we want, but we can use a lot of other stuff too. Our only hope is the grace of Jesus. The most generous person here, right? The most generous person here. If you gave all you possess to the Lord, but have not love, you know what the Bible says about you? You're nothing, okay? It's worthless. So none of us are justified by our generosity, right? We're only justified by the grace of Jesus. So quit saying the whole Old Testament law thing. That just sounds stupid, okay? It, it, it's like you, you take this like one little weird thing out to try to serve yourself. No, the, the truth of the matter is, is we look at the Old Testament law now as people who are justified by Christ, and we understand there's, there's truth in those laws. And there's a good principle that the first fruit of everything we have we give to the Lord. It's a great principle for most people, and I'll say this for most people in here, to say, look, the first 10% of everything I have, I'm going to give it to the Lord as an offering of praise to God. Now, some of you, God may have just enormously blessed, and God may be calling you to go way beyond that. 
And I think that's true for, for, for some of you in this room. God has asked you to be a steward of what he has given you. Some of you, you're thinking to yourself, 10%, I, I could never do that. And I would just say to you, just get started somewhere. Again, create a plan, take the step toward the Lord and see how the Lord blesses you. And I would just encourage you, this is a perfect time. This is such a great time to do that. This is how the Christian life works. You take a step in obedience, you invest in the Lord. And when you do, you see God's faithful care. And then you take the next step and the next step and the next step and the next step. You know, it's, 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 it's great to be able to get to the end of the year, as I just said, and look back and say, you know what? I, I probably could have done more, but I, I, I'm grateful that I've invested this in kingdom generosity this year. Now, some of you are in that journey. Some of you are just starting that journey. Some of you, you have experienced times of your Christian life where you have really grown. That step-by-step that -step thing that I'm talking about, you've experienced that and you've grown and your faith has grown. But right now, if you have to be honest, you're a little stagnant, you're a little dry. And what I would guess, and I'm just helping you with the diagnosis here, is that some regular discipline of faithfulness has fallen by the wayside in your life. You're not as regular in worship, right? You still come, you're still here, but you got a lot of other things going on. And so you're, you know, you're more like 25 times a year. Or maybe you've kind of fallen out of a community group. Maybe you're not really serving anywhere. Or maybe it's this. Maybe you're not really being generous with any of your wealth. What I would assess is that if you're feeling a little spiritually dry, that's probably happened. Which is, I think, why Jesus said in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, your heart will be. What you need to do is to get back invested. Don't wait till your heart gets warm to these things. Take a step of obedience. You know what is right. You know what you need to do. Take that step of obedience and trust the Lord. Now, people always tell me, you know, people always say, you know, are you serving anywhere? Are you doing this? You know, people always say, I don't have time. <laughs> I wish I could. I, I, I wish I could. I, I just don't have time. You know, or maybe, or maybe it's giving. Are, are you giving anywhere? You know, I really wish I could. We just, I just don't have any extra money. There's a, there's a great economics book. It's a famous economics book. If you studied economics in college, you read this book by Ludwig von Mises. It's called Human Action. You all know this book? Anybody take this in college? It's this huge book. It's a long book. It's hard to read. But I'm going to give you, this is the Jason D's. This is the D's notes version of the uh, von Mises treaties here. And it's this, very simple. It's you always do what you most want to do. Okay, that's the basic law of economics. You, you always do the thing that you believe will be most beneficial to you. That's what you do, right? So rather than saying, I don't have time to serve the Lord, say something like, serving the Lord is not important to me. You know? Or rather than say, I don't have time for a community group, say, gathering with the people of God is a waste of my time. I have better things to do than that. Or rather than say, you know, I don't have enough money to give to the Lord, just say, I'd rather spend all of my money on myself than on God. That, that, and I'm not trying to beat you up here. I'm just saying, just, just, it, it, you can't really grow until you honestly assess who you are. So don't quit making excuses that aren't actually true. Assess what's actually going on in your heart. This is what Paul's saying here. He said, the Macedonians, they've given themselves to the Lord. 
And then they didn't have any excuses. All these other things were easy for them because they, their heart was with the Lord. And that's what this is about. That's the, the order of your generosity begins. Is your heart really with the Lord? Or is your heart with something less? Now, one thing I want to get to, I have one little note here before I move to the second point. This verse just kind of struck me, and I had all these notes on it, and I was like, well, I, gotta, I, gotta, I can't waste all this. So anyway, verse 6, it says, Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, he should complete among you this act of grace. Verse 7, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. As so we're reading this passage, this word excel really caught my eye. It's the Greek uh, periseu, uh, and it means to be present over abundantly. Excel, to be present over abundantly. And the reason I think this caught my eye is because I, I realize, like, this is who you guys are. I mean, I, I get to hang out with you guys and meet with you and sit with you. And, and you are the, you're so present over abundantly. If you, when you're at work, you're not just at work, you're dominating work. When you're working out, you're dominating, you're eating right. I mean, y'all are always like talking to me about how you're eating some new eating plan. I'm like, man, that is awesome. Like you're, you're, y'all just do things really, really well. You celebrate holidays really, really well. You're good friends to one another. You excel. You're present over and abundantly. And, and what Paul says here is, look, you're exceeding in all these things. What have you exceeded in this grace too? In this grace of, gen- of generosity? Are you excelling? in this. And now it brings me to the second point, which is the motivation for our generosity. And here it is, verse 9. This is a verse that I have thought about um, a lot through the years. And so let's think about it just for a few moments here. It says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. And here's what I've thought about as I've tried to understand this verse. What is the wealth of Christ? And what is the poverty of Christ? What is the wealth of Christ? It's an amazing thing to think about. What is the wealth of Christ? Some of y'all have heard this before, but um, I've given this analogy, but Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, gave this story one time. He told a little story to help understand uh, enormous wealth, okay? And he, he came with this analogy, and, and at the time they did it, it's probably 20 years old or so, um, he was using Bill Gates, and Bill Gates at that time had uh, $50 million, okay? Or fi- sorry, $50 billion, right? There was a time when Bill Gates only had $50 million. <laughs> but anyway, uh, at this time, he had $50 billion. Now, of course, Gates' wealth, you know, I just looked up this week, it's like $109 billion or something. So, but at that time, he had $50 billion. And so I'm going to go ahead and change the figures to now Bill Gates' $100 billion. Um, but he said, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson was trying to say, okay, for me, and he said, at that time, I owned a car, had a house, had a good job. He said, for me, what was the lowest denomination of coin that I would pick up? Like, you know, you're walking along the street. It's free money. This is how much you value money. It's free money. You see a penny, 
And he said, and at that time in my life, I had a good job, I had a car, I, I had a house, I probably wouldn't pick up the penny. I'm not gonna, it's not worth my time to stop and pick up the penny. He said, a nickel, same thing with a nickel. I don't even know if I'd stop and pick up the nickel. Then now a dime, I'm probably picking up the dime, right? Unless it's like really gross, you know, I'm gonna pick up the dime. And he said, a quarter every time I'm picking up the quarter, okay? So that was his assessment of his own understanding of money. Now, he said, equating what I had to what Bill Gates had, and now I'm going to equate it to what Bill Gates has today, what would that amount of money, what would that unit of money be for Bill Gates? And it's $90,000, okay? So if Bill Gates saw like $50,000 laying there, he'd be like, you know what? I don't have time for this. <laughs> it's kind of dirty. Um, so in, in order for Bill Gates, in the same way that this guy would pick up a dime, to stop and pick up the money, it would have to be to make it to make it make time sense for him ninety thousand dollars. Okay, that is a lot of wealth. Right, that's what we call extreme wealth, and that's Bill Gates. And Bill Gates is an impressive human being, but still a very finite man with a finite amount of wealth. We're talking about Jesus here. We're talking about the eternal God, who spoke the world into existence who has everything, who the whole cosmos is at his complete disposal. So when Paul says here, though he was rich, <laughs> though he had wealth, what is he talking about? Let's stop and think about what is the enormous, immeasurable wealth of Jesus? There has never been anyone richer. And yet, for your sake, he made himself poor. Again, you've thought about the wealth of Christ. And again, we could keep thinking about that. But now let's stop and think about the poverty of Christ. What, what is the poverty of Christ? When Jesus made himself poor, what are we saying here? You know, for a long time when I was younger in my faith, I, I, I thought about the crucifixion of Christ as a physical and mental and emotionally grueling moment on a Roman cross, the, the actual physical death of Jesus. And it was grueling, obviously. I mean, the crucifixion is the cruelest form of execution that has ever been invented. But, but obviously, as I've come to understand the crucifixion, as I've come to understand what is happening in Jesus' great work of atonement, I've understood that the, 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 the cross, the, the, the physical picture of the cross and the death of Christ is is just, you're just beginning to scratch the surface. It's a shadow of what's really happening. And what's really happening is Jesus is enduring God's wrath. As 2 Corinthians says earlier in chapter 5, Jesus became sin. And he felt the full weight of that sin. Have you ever been caught in something? Have you ever done something that you know is sinful and you got caught? And it's that moment of, oh, I can't believe, oh, I can't believe I did this. You get caught. You know, I, a few years ago, someone remember there was this, it was a horrible web page. Um, it was basically a web page where married people could go to try to hook up with someone. It's called Ashley Madison. And a few years ago, there was a data breach, and all the people that had accounts on Ashley Madison, it was published. You know. And actually, I knew some folks that, I mean, very shaming time. I mean, and some of you, I'm sure, knew some folks too. It was a shameful, horrible thing, and uh, their name was out there. You know, they had gotten caught in this dark, secret, horrible thing. 
It was just this, this, this shame, this, this weight. Oh. The Bible talks about hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I think that the gnashing has less to do with pain and more to do with just regret and, and shame. I mean, you, you, you see, your eyes, if you will, are, are opened in hell to see that you've sinned against God. And it's, how could I have done this? What was I doing? Why was I so foolish? You see, that's poverty, right? Humiliation, regret, brokenness. This is who I really am. And, and I think if you start to understand that kind of poverty, then you begin to understand what it's really like to face God's wrath. What it's really like to have sinned against a holy and good and beautiful almighty God. Jesus, though he was rich, the richest person ever became poor for your sake. What does that mean? What does the poverty of Christ mean? I think about the word that Jesus said that they left in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. What does that mean? You have forsaken me, God. You have distanced yourself from me. I, I, am, I am totally separate for you in the guilt of this sin that Jesus took on for your sake, for my sake. The richest person ever became the poorest person ever. Why? For your sake. You deserved poverty. I deserve poverty. You deserve gnashing. I deserve weeping. But now in Christ, we have been set free of that. We are forgiven and we can run freely to the arms of God that should condemn us and only experience joy and grace and love. And so Paul is explaining this. And he says to the Corinthians, I love this, you know the grace of God. The richest person ever became the poorest person ever for you. You know this. It's almost as if he's saying, don't you? Don't you know this? I'll say this to you. Don't you know this? Don't you know this generosity? Don't you know this? Don't... Don't you know that the richest person ever became the poorest person ever so that you who should have been in poverty can now before him be rich? Don't you know this? And this is the motivation for our generosity. You know this. You know this. Jesus was rich. And if you really know this, if you really know Jesus like this, you'll go and do likewise. You will inconvenience yourself for the sake of your community. You will sacrifice for mission. You will give up something, even something that's precious to you. Because you realize that God has given up so much for you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would know the grace of God, that Jesus, though he was rich, the richest person ever, a wealth that we really can't even understand, became poor. He became the poorest person ever. 
a poverty that we can't understand. And, and by God's grace, we won't have to understand. He endured our hell so that we could be called home in Christ. So that we, as the Bible says, could share in his inheritance. And so, Father, today I pray two things. I pray that we would know this grace and that we would know this grace. That this would be clear to us. We would know what is happening here in the text. But, Lord, that we would know it. That we would know how generous you have been toward us in Jesus. And that it would change us. It would change our hearts. We would give ourselves first to Christ, first to the Lord. And then by your will, we give ourselves to Christ's covenant. We give ourselves to ministry. We give ourselves to one another in generosity. That we would have generous hearts. That you'd use this generosity for your glory's sake. So that this grace may be known in our community and all over the world. And even deeper by us. So I pray all this in Jesus' name. For his sake. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041. Or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.